0: Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way, I wanna jump over the pack and here he comes! <laughs> for the lead of Stangle. G there good. G there sharp. That's Razzle good, Dazzle yeah. Rioli. Oh, who else? McDonald, T Ball oh. oh, from inside the center square. of day everyone welcome to episode 135 of americans watching the footy three away from the spectacular already holy cow hadn't you thought that our spectacular was going to be a grand final preview it's going to be going to be earlier than that yeah because I, I think we just added a couple episodes in the meantime. Was why or you just forgot how to do math that's also quite possible that's no, because we'd had a couple more bonuses because I had done calculations before the season. But uh, yeah, here we are. Benjamin and Ethan Castle in South San Francisco, California with Brian Harambe the footy cat curled up on Ethan's bed and covering his face so as to say, don't fucking disturb me. If I could describe week one of finals in one word, schmoobly dong, I would say underwhelming. There were close games. But really, just the, the quality of play, the flow and everything, just didn't live up to last year's finals, except for one of the games. And you might not guess which one I really felt that was. Well, the weather definitely did impact those first two contests, Thursday and Friday night. Not to an extreme amount. There wasn't as much precipitation during the games themselves, but it looked more like wet weather footy at times. and The scoring kind of told that story as well. Now, as I've said... High scoring does not necessarily correlate with good. Low scoring doesn't necessarily correlate with bad. But it was just, these games seemed kind of sluggish at times. And the games that weren't so sluggish, you know, there were just some incredibly one-sided stretches instead of, you know, like some fun back and forth. Which game do you think was the most fun of this round? Let's see if we agree. I'm going to give it to the first two and a half quarters of game four. Yeah, there you go. I fully agree. And I would say, even when that game got less close and as the Lions pulled away, there was still some excitement to it. You know, there were stretches of back and forth each way in that third quarter before Brisbane really delivered the finishing blow. And just the entertainment value, the pace of the game, the amount of action that's what made it fun. Again, doesn't have to be that high scoring to be action packed. Just going back and watching last year's first round of finals, I think that was the only game that can compare to the four we got. I mean, it's going to be hard for any year to compare to Week One finals from last year for so many different reasons. But, but I'm just thinking, like, think about the Melbourne Sydney game. You know, one that wasn't necessarily down to the wire, but just a really fun back-and-forth game, or the bulldogs Frio game, there was a good swing there. There was, you know, the back-and-forth. That was probably the least exciting of the four, and that one still left a lot to talk about. I just don't think this year's really quite lived up to that. I mean, the Sydney win was also an unexpected result, given a lot of the season as well, so there were a lot of things adding up to that. Honestly, even though one of the lower seeds won, I wouldn't say it was really an unexpected result, considering I saw him as favorites on the betting line, and I just saw him as favorites irrespective of that as well. Yeah, I'd agree. There weren't any, like, shocking results, but I think we do have a lot to talk about. So, without further ado, Collingwood, 9 defeating Melbourne, seven Let's just cut to it. Brayden Maynard straight to the tribunal. Jacob Van Rooyen suspended one game, and I believe that's been accepted. I think the Van Rooyen one game is completely correct, because if he hadn't raised the elbow... It would have been nothing. It would have just been a normal collision going from ball. Yeah, it would have been, some people say, a footy act. I like to say, taking after a terrible broadcaster who pulled out actually a very good phrase, ugly geometry. But no, once once you raise the RV, you are liable there. Yeah, and that was completely unnecessary and avoidable, so I'm totally okay with it. The other thing is, I, I like that he got the suspension even though Dan McStay wasn't actually concussed by it that they punished the action regardless of the result. I imagine had he been concussed, it would have been a second game. Do you think it would have been two had he been concussed? Yeah, which, you know, I've said many times I'm not a fan of that approach. When it comes to the um, Maynard and Brayshaw thing, I mean, the spoiling attempt did look somewhat realistic, but I think Maynard will still get punished for kind of turning in toward Brayshaw. I like the idea that it's either going to be a three-game suspension or, like, nothing. This is another one where I think the action is more of an issue than the result. I mean, Breshaw's concussion could have happened regardless of how the collision occurred, but it's a matter of what measures did Maynard take or what more could he have taken. I mean, I guess maybe he could get two games. I think there's no way he gets a one-game suspension. It's either It's either out till round one of next year, Yeah, or maybe even out till round two, or nothing at all. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. So we're recording this Monday Night Australian time, so it's going to be Tuesday evening that those decisions get handed down. You've got the Maynard Tribunal along with another from the Carlton-Sydney game, and we'll get to that in a bit. As for the actual Collingwood-Melbourne action, Collingwood got up 26-6, to they had a ton of forward time early, and then basically had none and were kind of lucky to hold on. Yeah, from uh, the second through the fourth quarter, Inside 50s were 56-22 to 22 in the Demon's favor, and yet they only outscored the Pies by 13. They kicked 6-11 from 56 entries, while Collingwood kicked 5-4 from 22. It was accuracy that Doom Melbourne, from the outset it was an issue, kicking 7-11 with 8 misses, so 7 goals on 20 shots. You're not going to win a game like that. Back kicking is bad footy. But thinking about the entries, you know, it's it's not unheard of for Collingwood to manage to win a game despite that discrepancy. They ended up minus 32 for the game. But if you think about last year in round 21 when they faced off against the D's, they won that despite being minus 22 inside 50s. It's a matter of efficient movement using the speed they have and more efficient shooting as well. They've won a pretty fair amount of games when they haven't had more inside 50s. And I think when it's happened so frequently, it's a mix of getting lucky, as they did in this game, and being really good defensively and denying entries and forcing teams into lower quality shots. I think this game was also some of both. I thought it was really interesting. Melbourne did everything they could to get away from Isaac Koino, which is smart. But it came at the cost of some deeper entries, and then Nathan Murphy and Darcy Moore both lifted. I had said in our finals week one preview that the structure needs to be sound around more in terms of the tall defenders. And even without Billy Frampton back there, having Murphy there as an extra one on one, often taking the primary matchup, was a huge factor in this Collingwood win. Nathan Murphy and Bo McCreary are two players that I think in a lot of systems would not be anywhere near as effective as they are at Collingwood and again, my description of both of them, even though they're playing at opposite ends of the ground, is they make winning plays, and Nathan Murphy did a lot of that in this game. Also want to give some love to Mason Cox, even though Max Gone ended up with 27 disposals, I thought Mason did a good job just making him earn him. Yeah, he did well against gone early on in the Ruck, made life for him difficult there, and got a vote of confidence as well when Darcy Cameron got subbed out. Now, some people are saying there may have been some concerns with Cameron's health throughout the week. But regardless, Mason stayed in, played the whole game in a win. And uh, even though he didn't get a goal, we could say September Mason showed up. He did a good job. Again, a lot of what you've got to do against Gone is just stick with him. Try to make his life difficult. Make him earn his touches. You're probably not going to outplay him. And if you can just annoy him and make him work through something, you've done a good job. You could tell also, though, that Gon's ruck craft when he actually gets the taps is better. There were a few times in the second half where it was Tom Sparrow in particular running through stoppages and getting on the end of a couple of Mason's taps. He converted one of those into a goal nearly did a second time. So just needs to be a bit more refined there, Mason. And we now really await who that is he's going to be going up against, whether that'll be Kieran Briggs or Scott Lysette. I would take Mason over Lysette right now, as crazy as that sounds. I think Lysette's a mixed bag. We'll get to that in a bit. The other thing that frustrated me the most out of this game was Melbourne reverting to their old ways in terms of entries, just kicking long to packs and hoping it worked. I think Jake Melksham being out really messed up their forward structure and that they didn't have as reliable of a small mark. I was hoping for Cade Chandler to have a more prominent role there. Kazi Pickett didn't get as much of the ball. And when it came to the taller placement, Tom McDonald, who could go back and forth, was on the slower side of things. So I'd say that would be an endorsement of Joel Smith spending some more time forward, backing in Michael Hibbard as he's near the end of his career. He announced that he'll be retiring at the end of the finals campaign. I believe they could get him to 200 games if they make the grand final. Back to talking Melbourne's forward structure. Collingwood is not a team you want to try to bomb it into 50 against. They're good in contested marks. You want to do that against, like, Essendon. Frankly, this is a style that there aren't many teams that are going to play finals that you're going to be able to pull that off against, because if you make finals, you typically have a really good defense. I imagine that Simon Goodwin will adjust that. I think, again, Chandler and Pickett are going to be really important in that structure, and with my doubts about Tom McDonald, I'm hoping for strategic and personal reasons that Ben Brown gets a crack in the semifinal. I guess the question now for Collingwood is what's going to happen when Nick Dacos comes back in? Who gets replaced? The general consensus among fans is Patrick Lipinski, though I put him at above average for this qualifying final. I thought he was really strong in terms of disposing the ball, may not have had huge numbers, was in the teens, but tended to be more effective than not. Maybe some of the concern was the lack of pressure that he applied. But it's going to be a hard time trying to figure out whether it's Lipinski going out, Oleg Markov, Tom Mitchell. I would say not take Lipinski out. It seems most likely, though. I mean, un- unless it's Markov. I think Lipinski would be left out rather than made the sub in favor of Jack Ginnivan. I think Markov's the one that goes out. That's what I was thinking as well. You were surprised that Markov was in the pecking order over John Noble. I, th- I was thinking all along that Markov was more there for providing some of the run that Nick Dacos can provide in the back half. As much as we like Markov, as, as exciting of a player as he can be, if I were on the selection committee, I would be saying that he'd be the one to miss out. And when it comes to the Demons for replacing Angus Brayshaw and Jacob Van Rooyen this week, well, Van Rooyen being out is another reason why I'd say bringing Ben Brown. Could be able to take some of that ruck pressure off of Gone as well, and I'd rather have him in there than Tom McDonald. In, in terms of kind of covering for Brayshaw, though, I think, you know, a bigger game out of Jack Viney, he was limited to 20 disposals here. You return him to form, that probably covers a fair amount of your problems. He wasn't bad, but he was less than we've become accustomed to. I guess other than that, uh, get more out of Ed Langdon, who was a little bit on the quiet side in this game. He had a couple of stretches where he was pretty prominent, and that was about it. I would say James Harms would get a chance, but it looks like he actually got a hamstring injury and a scratch bath, so... That compounds their difficulties there. I think James Jordan probably gets another crack. Yeah, that would make sense. It's a really bad time for them to cop these sorts of injuries, but they've got to make the most of what they've got right now. Jack crisp-led Collingwood with just 23 disposals. He had a goal, gained 500 meters. Steel side with 22, Will hoskin with 20. Bobby Hill, three goals and a behind. He was the better of the small forwards in this game. Kazi Pickett couldn't kick straight. Probably conflicting for Mason to watch that. And Darcy Moore 10 intercepts. Again, it was clear effort by Melbourne to stay away from Isaac Quaynor, but Moore and Murphy got theirs. Clayton Oliver led the game with 31 disposals. He had 16 contested possessions, 11 clearances, an octopus, and octopus at 742 meters gained, 16 possessions as well for Christian Petraka in his 29 disposal performance. You have the two of them with lifting in contests and just Melbourne not being able to make good on their forward entry. So yeah, I guess maybe just a better game out of Viney and greater efficiency in front of goal, including from Bailey Frisch, who was surprisingly poor after kicking five goals round 24 in his comeback. Maybe that'll be enough. You mentioned Gons big day, 31 hitouts, 27 disposals, 22 contested, 10 clearances and seven marks. Jake Bowie with 19 disposals and eight marks has looked like a more complete back half player in these past few weeks. Would still like him to be able to bulk up a bit more. Not sure how much more he can fit onto his frame, but liking his play more as of late. Carlton, 14-8-74, defeating the Sydney Swans in 9-14-68 in the first elimination final. This one started slowly, but once the Blues got out to their 29-point lead at halftime, we thought, all right, we might be able to shut the door on this one. Not the case, as the Swans woke up in the forward half. Only thing is they had some trouble kicking straight. They had an acceptable, not great 4-3 showing in the third quarter and then 2-5 in the fourth. And in the end, it ended up being a really fitting tribute to the Crows team that many would argue should have had their final spot where they had dominant stretches that they couldn't turn into goals. Yeah, I believe it was uh, in those some of those seven heartbreakers that the Crows had, they kicked 74 goals, 101 behinds. So yeah, that, that's very like the Crows there for the Swans to go out and do that, despite the forwards, despite the forwards that they do have. And another year or two out of that crop of Joel Marty, Logan McDonald, Hayden McLean will serve them very, very well. This is a side that I think still can mature a bit more. We'll talk about Sydney during the post-mortem segment in our semi-final preview, but the TLDR version... That they made finals with everything that went wrong this year is impressive in its own right, whether or not they deserve to be there. And I wouldn't be concerned at all about the long-term success at this club. The question is going to be, and I get, you know, after a while you start to ask, will they win a flag under John Longmire, which another flag that is? Yeah. I still think he's a very good coach. I wouldn't make any changes there. It sounds like maybe he'll be out as part of a succession plan and in two years may involve their assistant and former Eagles premiership Rock Dean Cox, but tactically, I think they're sound. What I did like about the storyline of this game was that it involved two players who really before this year did not get enough respect for the roles that they had for the Blues. Of course, one of them is going to be fronting the tribunal on Tuesday, that being Jack Martin. He was suspended two games for careless conduct and high impact, but he kind of went with a Round arm and got to Nick Blakey's jaw. Again, Blakey was sent down for a head injury assessment there. That was pretty early on in this one. But Martin ended up going back in the end and securing a couple really important marks. He also kicked two goals. And at the very end, who was it that got that final intercept mark? Nick Newman. I have yet to hear anybody in an AFL commentary box this year use hello Newman when he did something great. So I guess Seinfeld just doesn't have enough of a a place in Australian culture. Also a great storyline that it was the former Swan to get that done too. He played 31 games for the Swans between 2017 and 2018, has now played 22 this year, and this may be the best season of his career. Career highs in a whole bunch of categories, disposals, tackles, more rebounds than ever, the most complete season that he's had. He's only ever had five Brownlow votes. I would not be surprised to see him equal, if not exceed that, this year alone. Also, Matthew Cottrell provides such a spark with you know, some of the chaos plays in the forward 50, even though you'll also see him drop into some midfield stuff. And, and in the back 50 at times as well. Did I see him? Did we see him take a few kick-ins this year even? I think so. Which, which is kind of weird when you have someone like Adam Saad. What? who did not take our advice and test the storage of bounces. If you didn't listen to that in our uh, finals week one preview, basically imagine if you were able to just store a bunch of bounces, say you bounce five times within 15 meters and then you can run 60 more. Maybe Sod's too straightforward to test that rule though, even though he just bounces as soon as he can most of the time. It's funny with Contral because when you think of forwards that create chaos... You think of two things, either someone who crashes pack marks or, you know, a small guy who crumbs and kicks snaps on the run, and he's really neither of those things, but he's been a really instrumental part of what this Carlson team has done, and you look at the changes that they made to their lineup right around when they went on that tear, starting with the win over the Suns, the first win over the Suns, and bringing him in was a big part of that. Now the question becomes, what's going to be the situation next week with Harry Mackay out? He went out concussed, and you could tell right away he was not in the right place mentally, physically, what have you. When that contact happened, it was as scary as when Daniel Rich got that knee to the head last year. It was just that sort of instant, oh, he is not right reaction. Yeah, there was like no semblance of balance whatsoever there. It was a very quick call, as quick as the call that had been made on Wibba near the end of the home and away season. There's a chance Jack Sylvani is ready to go next week. I imagine you would have him in if so. Have some of the taller support, some of the rucks support as well. He'd been playing pretty well before getting injured. I would think if not, you know, you find a way to get Patty Dow back involved. Even if he's not a forward, you can shuffle some guys around, move a, move someone else further forward. If Martin is suspended, I would say Jesse Motlop into the 22. Patty Dow as the sub is a clear solution right there. They're really going to be fighting the urge, though. The urge to have Patty Dow as the sub? Oh no, the urge to have Ed Curdow as the sub. Ah, yeah, this is his last ride. He had been on the boundary for a lot of the game with his kid. It's going to be tough to leave him out, but at the same time, I would take Dow over him. And the only reason I would say to not have Dow on the 22 is that I was kind of right with saying that Sam Walsh would be playing a similar sort of game to what Dow had done in Walsh's absence from that hamstring injury. Near the end of the game, I was really frustrated with one with one blue and really pleased with another. Brody Kemp just kind of disconnected his controller in the goal square instead of rushing it through. Tried to make too much happen, try to get the ball out, and it led to a Swans goal. Had it not been five a.m., I would have been screaming. Then at the very end of the game, though, who is it that kicks what I really saw as the game sealing goal at the time with five to go? Ended up, I guess, not being the case because. It did get down to within a goal at the end, but I love that it was Blake Akers, a do-it-all player for much of the year, and also that he showed up big in finals week one when his team that traded him away for essentially nothing is sitting at home or golfing or whatever they're doing. There was some justice in that, and as an Eagles fan, I could laugh at the Dockers for that. I could laugh at them, and I'm kind of someone who likes Frio. Even though they'd done your team dirty, what was it, the past three times? Yeah. I don't have anything against Frio. It's just, this was stupid and we said it was stupid from the start and I like being right. If I'm correct, Frio are the only team Geelong haven't beaten in the past two years? Yeah. I think they were the only one they hadn't beaten in 2022 even. They didn't beat Hawthorne that year, took care of that this year. Uh, You know what I think? Yeah, it was Hawthorne and Frio last year then. Because they had beaten the Saints- and what was that other 2022 loss for the Cats? Because they were 18 and four, right? Yeah, it was Sydney. Oh yeah, Sydney round two. Yeah, they made up for that. Took care of that. That was that was handled. But yeah, um, a moment for a Cats fan here to laugh it for you. My laughing that has nothing to do with being a Cats fan. And just again, it's I'm right, and you were also right about the Swans honoring the Crows. I like that it was an X score loss for both the teams that won. These games just symbolizing the issues with accuracy that ended up deciding a lot of these games. We really should be preparing for a a Sydney-Collingwood semi-final this coming week. Hey, we still have the chance for a Carlton and Collingwood grand final. I think that would be spectacular. But now, if the Blues beat Melbourne next week, the Demons will have a very, very undesirable achievement. No team has gone out in straight sets in consecutive years under the current final system which has been in place since 1999. Not even the Lions, even with their reputation for it. No, because 2019 it was straight sets. 2020 they won their qualifier against Richmond. 2021 straight sets. And then last year, obviously, they made a prelim. Sam Walsh led this final with 28 disposals, including 16 contested possessions. Much more of an inside role than I necessarily expected, even with Patrick Cripps in there. Cripps seemed to be at full health, just Walsh got more of the ball. Akers kicked 1-1 from 26 and gained 570 meters. Happy for him. Happy for former swan Newman, who had 23 disposals. And for another former swan in there as well, George Hewitt, with his 25 and 13 contested. Just very good contested possession game all around for the Blues. You know, I'm not using the they were good in the contest cliche here because this was a legitimate case. Adam Chara, not woof, with a goal from 24 disposals and 7 tackles. Adam Saad, woof. There we are, 23, 11 intercepts, 7 marks, 505 meters. How many bounces did he take? Let me check AFL tables on that one. sod took four. To four more than Max gone has ever taken. Yeah, um, he's had 48 bounces this year. How many bounces did he have last year? Was it a lot? Was it? I don't want to be really wrong here. So you know what? I'm going to guess... Going by Prices Right rules, I'm going to guess a really low number, 11. You can add a three on the end of that. All right. Adam Saad had 113 bounces in 2022, including 15 in their round 14 loss to Richmond. That's 14 more than George Gawn has ever had, Max's son. Patrick Cripps ended up kicking 1-1 from 21 disposals and 14 contested possessions. 1-1 from 21 was also the line for Sam Doherty. He kicked the opener. Great emotions for that. And throughout this game from Blues players and fans alike, you could tell that they'd been waiting a long time for this. And considering they had over 92,000 there, nearly matching the Melbourne and Collingwood attendance for a game against a non-Victorian side, I was just really impressed with the crowd and the reactions throughout. And I'm looking forward to the crowd for this semifinal this coming week, I think it could be even bigger. Cottrell kicked 2-1 from 17 disposals, kind of a, a wild card player in a lot of respects. Blues were plus 10 in inside 50s, 56 to 46, and I guess that helped make up for their lack of disposal efficiency there because they were outdone there by almost 14%. They were also minus 21 in marks, but got the intercepts when they mattered. There was a stretch in this game, really the second quarter, where Carlton were just clearly the more dominant team, and it all kind of came in a wave then. You know, the rest of the game... You could say, especially the second half, Sydney was superior. First quarter, Carlton was the better team, but it kind of swung back and forth. Just the margin by which they were better in the second quarter greatly exceeded the margin by which Sydney were better in the second half. And you combine that with the Swans not kicking straight, and that's why the Blues are still playing and why, in our next episode, we'll be kind of burying the Swans' season. By the way, the Blues were plus 26 in contested possessions, 161. To 135. So I was correct in that. Jake Lloyd led the Swans with 27 disposals, 10 marks, 578 meters. Nick Blakey, 23 disposals. His dad's now out of a job because he's not coming back to North Melbourne. So I don't know, maybe he'll join his son down at Sydney. Benjamin's future Brownlow pick, Errol Golden. Two goals of behind, 23 disposals, eight marks, 546 meters. Brayden Campbell, are behind in 22 disposals, like what I saw out of him. Chad Warner, a behind in 22. Callum Mills, a behind in 21. Luke Parker, two goals, 19 disposals, eight marks. Tom Papley, a behind 18 disposals, 10 contested possessions, and seven clearances. Interesting. Yeah, don't normally think of him as a big contest player or really a center square player, but worked there. Hayden McLean, a goal, a behind, 17 disposals, 12 marks, and 11 hitouts. I thought he was maybe Sydney's best. And then Tom McCartan had 18 disposals, 12 intercepts, and 9 marks. My, My other takeaway, and again, we're going to talk a lot more about the Swans in the ensuing episode, but I just want to say real quick, unlike a lot of the other teams from outside of Victoria, they seem to have much less of an issue with getting guys to come to them. It seems like far fewer players are like worried about you know being far from home and going to Sydney. Like, GWS don't have anywhere near as much of a luxury with that, and you certainly can't say that the other out-of-state teams have that luxury. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem-solving, we do just that Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back. Don't forget we are on Twitter at Americansbuddy. I am on Twitter at Castle Media. I am on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is sleeping once again and is on Instagram at Cat Brian. Let's get back into things talking about the Saturday finals now with St. Kilda 11-11-77 being defeated by the Greater Western Sydney Giants 15-11-101 at the G in the second elimination final. Good show out for this one. Was glad to see decent attendance there. 68,465, the Giants' largest attendance for a game that wasn't against Collingwood or Richmond. I was a little bit late to the party with this game coming home from high school football, but basically, when I got out of it, Giants really gave it to them for a stretch in the second quarter, and then even though the Saints got it to, like, what, about three, four goals a couple times, they could never really come all the way back to really put the fear of God into them. Yeah, I mean, the Saints were hard enough to kill, which is kind of weird considering the role of martyrdom and canonization and all of that. But yeah, Giants were favored in this game, and they ended up winning, largely in ways that we expected. Their defense held up. Sam Taylor was a massive in, obviously. Was looking at maybe a five to seven week absence with his hamstring injury. But after talking with Jeremy Cameron, of all people about working through things, that gave him good advice. And along with just the healing process going well, he was back in. And even though Max King kicked, or sorry, even though Max King kicked three goals on Taylor, I thought the ASMR was only for like injuries for him. I I didn't think so because we talked, we did that when he was coming back, uh, or like when he kicked all of his goals on return. So I I don't think so. But regardless, even though King kicked those goals against him, Taylor held up when he needed to. And overall, just a good defensive showing by the Giants. And they stayed organized even when Kilda pushed the pace, which they did, especially in the second half, trying to get back into things. I find it surprising, even with how this game started, that they even scored 77 points. Oh yeah, another thing that helped for the Giants. Toby Bedford being in. Yeah, he got his suspension overturned on appeal. Basically, it was a middle finger to the tribunal in terms of how they clearly didn't put enough weight behind the evidence from the biomechanist that the Giants brought in, as well as Zach Fisher himself, who apparently was feeling fine after the incident. So maybe that took out some of the severity of the impact. But uh, yeah, Toby was in. David Zeta had tweeted out that Bedford had this great reaction to it, just jumping up out of his chair, and he was hoping that it had been recorded. And uh, the Giants came through. He just, he was all confused for realizing, like, wait, all these words are just, like, too much. Am I actually off? Yeah, you're, you're free to play. Fuck yes. Here's something I've realized. Anyone who gets off from a suspension, they end up doing something, like, really impactful. Like, you don't get off from a suspension and then, you know, just, like, have a subpar game or play like shit. You go and absolutely ball. Yeah, and Bedford did very well. Kicked a goal from just inside 50 late in the first quarter. Had some important stoppage and contest wins. Kicked another goal in the third. Ended up going 2-2 from 16 disposals. And just having him and Brent Daniels in has done so much to open up the rest of Toby Green's game. And I hope people have realized how much both Bedford and Daniels have facilitated their captain's All-Australian captaincy. Them holding steady at half-forward their speed Their ability by both hand and foot, everything below their knees as well, has allowed Toby Green to play wherever he's needed. Thanks to all three of those smalls, along with good games from a host of other players, the Giants were more effective from clearance. It wasn't a huge margin, just raw clearance numbers, but the plays that they got off of them were better. And I guess now it's time to talk about the game that Josh Kelly had. So he was thrust into a more prominent role when Steven Canelio was ruled out after suffering an eye injury in training on Thursday. And Kelly went out and kicked 2-1 from 27 disposals, 10 score involvements, 7 clearances, and 622 meters. So Kelly and Bedford combined for 16 clearances between themselves. It got to the point that Ross Lyon did something that he rarely ever does. He actually implemented a tag. Yeah, and he should have from the beginning. It should have been very obvious. No, Kelly is the one that you got to attack from the beginning, and Marcus Windhager finally got that opportunity, limited Kelly somewhat in the second half, but he'd already had a great impact by then, and he fittingly got the 10 votes toward the Gary Ayers Award. Here's one of the really frustrating things. If you're facing the Giants, it's like, do you tag him? Do you tag Tom Green? Do you put a forward tag on Toby? you Who would have thought at the start of the year the Giants would have been a team that would have been like, wait, we can only tag one guy probably. I could understand it based on how they'd done in 2019. And the thing is, though, even we underestimated the impact of Daniels and Bedford on this team. The 35 disposals and 705 meters gain from Tom Green may have warranted a tag as well, but Kelly was the right decision. It just should have happened a lot sooner. And maybe then we could have been talking about a closer game instead of wondering whether the Saints are truly one of the eight best teams. That's going to be a fun subject debate again in our next episode when we put an end to our Saints and Swans discussions and move on to previewing semifinals, which, again, we would call quarterfinals. Yeah, we, um, yeah, we agree with Barish on that front. Um, the Giants in the first quarter exceeded their total score from their previous final at the G., they kicked 5-3 in the first quarter and only managed 25 points in the 2019 Grand Final, despite, I believe, kicking the first goal. Yeah, they definitely kicked the first goal. Remember, there was a whole string of Grand Final losers kicking the opening goal. Was it Geelong? who broke that, or was it Melbourne? Uh, I think it was Melbourne. Let me check. Uh, yeah, it was Melbourne. It was Petraca. Ah, uh, yeah, makes sense. Start of his Norm Smith effort. So yes, the last two grand finals have both been won by the team that kicked the first goal. Other things here, um, there were some big emotions surrounding Dan Boyd's goal in this game, and makes sense. A player who's really admired on that Giants list had to fight really hard to get back into the league after not getting a game with the Bulldogs on their their scholarship. Next week will be his one hundredth game thrill that he's getting to that milestone. On the younger side, it's Finn Callahan that continues to impress me, going from the halfback to the wing. Just such a sure player already. Rarely makes poor decisions and lightning fast as well. Had a big impact on a few of the rebounds and is quickly cementing himself as a key player in this Giants group. Also, congratulations to Greater Western Sydney on setting a record that in some ways is desirable and in some ways isn't. They have won at 11 different venues this season. I don't think that's undesirable at all. I think that's fucking awesome. I think it's undesirable that they've had to travel so much and as a result have been at so many alternate venues. I think it's great, especially because you can realize that, like, for example, Collingwood could never do that. Richmond as well. But yeah, they won games at Giants Stadium, Norwood Oval, SCG, Cardinia Park, Blundstone Arena, Traeger Park, Adelaide Oval, Monica Oval, Mars Stadium, Marvel Stadium. And the G. So the only standard territory in which they did not win a game this year? Western Australia. They lost to the Eagles round two. Filling out the GWS stats. Lockie Ash, 31 disposals, 9 marks 588 meters. Lockie Whitfield, 31 disposals, 518 meters. He was kind of victimized a few times in the air by Cooper Sharman, but steadily won on the ground. I thought that the Saints would have been able to exploit that matchup with Sharman a little bit more, but they just Couldn't have nearly as effective entries. Kieran Briggs are behind. 28 hit outs, 17 disposals, 15 contested possessions, 9 clearances. Cotter Eiden, 11 intercepts. Giants were more efficient inside 50 by just a hair over 14%. Again, that's the efficiency stat that matters. Yeah, the Saints are last in the AFL for inside 50s to scores. That ratio had been... A real talking point, sticking point for them throughout the home and away season, and that definitely manifested itself again on the hitout numbers. I find it really interesting that, like, without Patty Ryder, this new version of Rowan Marshall, he just doesn't win a lot of hitouts, but does everything else, and it's totally okay. Yeah, Mark, he's a really interesting player and a fun study. So the question is, do you get that support for him, or do you not? Does Jack Hayes have a more prominent role to play next year? Marshall with a goal, 31 disposals, 22 contested possessions, 18 hitouts, all 18 of the Saints' hitouts, 9 clearances to 506 meters, a do-it-all player who happens to be cast as a ruck. I wonder what would happen if he was in like a more Mark Blitzoff's type role. Could he do that stuff effectively? Maybe having another ruck in there could allow for that, so maybe that is a spot for Hayes to be more prominent. I'm not sure if Ross Line would be the type to take that gamble, though but if if you want to see what that's like, Rowan, why don't you consider going down the highway? Why not try a holiday in Geelong next year? A second Blitzovs would be, like, terrifying for opponents. And hopefully Blitzovs can return to more of that role next year between steadier health for the whole list and the emergence of Toby Conway for the Cats. As we touched on with both the round 24 recap and our So You Didn't Crack the 8 episodes, again, if your team didn't play finals... We did postmortems on the 10 non-finalist clubs already, so go back and look at those two recent episodes for that. Jack Steele led the final with 38 disposals and eight clearances. Brad Hill kicked 2-1 from 29 and gained 560 meters. Returned to more of that outside role, whereas he played inside in their home and away matchup. Jack Sinclair, 25 disposals at 493 meters. Seb Ross a behind from 24. Isaiah Migadine Miller, one of the most accurate kicks and could be argued to be one of the top 10 players on the Saints list already, and one of the top pieces from his draft class already. A goal from 23 disposals and 523 meters. Looking forward to his continued maturation at AFL level. Brad Crouch behind from 21. Josh whats a battle with 18 disposals and 8 marks. Jade Gresham, we'll see what his future is, 17 at 7 tackles. And I mentioned Cooper Sharman got the better of Whitfield in terms of marking. He kicked 2-1 from 16 disposals and 11 contested possessions. He had a really nice mark in there at one point as well. Uh, I think it was actually for the first goal where he had this tough pack mark that, you know, if they had mark of the round for the finals weeks, you could definitely see that be right up there. Brisbane, 19-9, 123, defeating Port Adelaide, 11-9, I know this game got out of hand in the second half, but this was the most fun final in that it felt like a final, you know, fast-paced, high-octane, good action, even if there were some pretty bad set-shot misses, including some from some very unlikely candidates. It just, this was the one game that really felt like September footy supposed to feel. Until Port got ravaged by entries, I'd say. And even then, it felt like Brisbane were going to pull away, but basically, Lions led by 11 after a quarter where Port kicked 1-4, Todd Marshall had a really bad night. 16-point lead at half, scored three straight in the third to go up by 28, porked out it back down to 16, and then the Lions ran away with it. And it was right after a really tough sequence of events report. They file the sub paperwork, and then, like, as that happens, they've got Dylan Williams coming to the bench, grabbing his hamstring, and Trent McKenzie hurt his ankle as Cam Rainer crashed the pack. But too late. Travis Boak had already come in for Darcy Burton Jones, and frankly, even if that sub hadn't been made, and even if they were playing, you know, with 21 men instead of 20, or even if that hadn't happened, I think Brisbane were in position to pull away. It was a big night for Joe Daniger, five for him, but uh, that didn't cause the most fun singing of the night. I know, so here's the thing, a lot of people... Get mad about goal music, including people that aren't, like, the old, crusty, do-everything-the-same-way-forever type? Like, these aren't old men yelling at clouds? Correct. They are not crackpots. And their son is not a porn star or whatever. So those two consecutive Charlie Cameron goals that sent the Gabba into a frenzy were back-to-back goals a little bit before that port injury fiasco happened. They started singing John Denver, and then set of clearance... Center clearance, Cameron gets the handball on the overlap. They aren't even done singing, and they got to start cheering and singing it again. I, I really like this. I like that the sing-along, you know, like continues after the music stops. And again, it's really funny that a song that's about in place pretty much halfway around the world. By the way, it's not the state of West Virginia. It's the western part of the state of Virginia. Beautiful area of the United States, regardless of which it actually is. Too damn humid, but that... That's a lot of the country. I mean, it's it's a lot of the eastern seaboard. If you could get over that, though, yeah, Appalachia's really pretty. I like the stretch between, like, western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee from my recent travels there. Uh, Asheville, North Carolina is awesome, and everyone should visit there. Is that also the one with the minor league ballpark that held a NASCAR race? I don't know. I just know it's a 100-year-old stadium that's about to undergo some major renovations, so I'm glad that I was able to see it before that and i'm sure i'm i would enjoy also seeing it after that yup 1956 mccormick field hosted a stock car race i i guess it must have been on like the upper part of the footprint of the place because there's no way they could do anything with it with how small like the current setup is it must have been a totally different setup anyway that's the song is about that part of the country i thought it was a really fun moment I think we're just more okay with that sort of thing. We're more used to it because of hockey goal songs. Well, here's the thing. Hockey goal songs, I'm not like a big fan of. Like having songs for each player, especially because sometimes you know, you can't tell like, oh, did it get tipped? I don't know. Whereas with footy, there's really maybe one or two goals all season where you're not sure who it gets credited to. The, the hockey version of this that I like is goal. You have the normal team goal song. And then like during the next stoppage of play, they play, like, the individual player song. That's that's how I would do it. Have any teams actually done that or no? I think that's happened a couple times where, because, like, you... If it's, like, a star player. No, or if they didn't know who scored it the first time. Because, yeah, again, a lot of times you don't know who's going to get credit with a goal even after it's been scored. Yeah, it's, that's a nice thing about Australian football. It's, I'd say soccer generally, you can do that as well. I mean, most codes of football, it's pretty damn clear. You know what, I think every NFL team, like every NFL player should have a touchdown song and that even like the offensive lineman and then when one of them falls on a fumble in the end zone, you finally get to play it. I think that would be great. The offensive line will just have like the most meme picks ever then. Oh yeah, it would be it would be fun. Definitely need, you know, someone's left guard if they ever fall on a fumble for a touchdown to start playing Numa Numa or uh, as the full song is known, Dragostadine Tang like the only Moldovan words anyone will ever know. Yeah, especially because the Sunstroke Project sing in English. But yeah, Brisbane pulled away. It was mostly the usual suspects, although Locky Neal was held below 20 disposals. Hugh McCluggage actually led the way for them with 26 of them. 12 score involvements, 9 clearances, and a goal. 10 votes pretty easy for him. Yeah, Locky Neal tagged a lot of the way. Will and Drew, among others, playing him closely is a role that makes sense, and Drew did well for his efforts, getting 20 disposals, 13 contested possessions, and 8 clearances. I liked how the Lions, kind of even with Neil being tagged, what they would do is they'd have someone, like, towards the wing in open space, and they'd swing it to him, and then that guy would center it, or find someone along the boundary, usually center it. And and that's a, a great role for McCluggish to be able to play, that sort of next outside guy, where we don't really think of him as as a true wing, but he's been casted that role a lot for Brisbane. Yeah, it's sort of like trying to think of like a way for people to visualize this. I don't know. It's You know, you have like kicks going forward straight from one end to the other, and then you swing it out to the right at like a 45 degree angle. And then from there, you work it back into the middle. I think that's the best way to describe it. And yeah, they use that really effectively all night. The uh, Biggest positive for Port Adelaide? No question. Ollie Lord with his four-goal performance. He was someone who could kick straight on a night where Todd Marshall had some inexplicably awful misses. You know, I think of Marshall as a very good set shot and one of the best contested marks. So weird night for him. But Lord not only kicked the four, he was matched up against Harris Andrews and kind of kicked his ass. And yet the Lions still won this game by 48. Ollie Lord against Sam Taylor... Could happen next week. I don't. I feel like there could be a world where even after kicking four goals, Lord might not get that main assignment because of Marshall, because of Finlayson, because of Charlie Dixon coming back in. I think he's got to stay in, though. I mean, he kicked forward also with the injuries that Port have. They'll need to recast their defense with McKenzie maybe being an issue. I would say slide Ryan Burton back. Give him a steadier job in defense. I would hope that Darcy Byrne-Jones stays in the 22 at that pressure forward spot where he usually does well, but I guess it depends on how compromised they end up being with if McKenzie's able to go or not. Yeah, I thought McKenzie was not particularly good in this game. I guess we'll also see then what the status is on Tom Jonas. Think about Jonas missed this game with a calf injury. So the Brisbane Lions obviously have been building up to this for a few years now. It's Chris Fagan's seventh year. It's their fifth straight year making finals. They, in fact, are the only club to have made each of the past five final series. And that's despite claiming the spoon in 2017 and finishing 15th in 2018. But I think some of the greatest excitement from this game came from one of their newest pieces, that being Jasper Fletcher, pick 12 from this past draft. And we talk about how sound of a player Will Ashcroft is. He fits into that midfield so seamlessly, and maybe that's why he isn't as noticeable at times when he makes the excellent plays that he does, Jasper Fletcher is that flashy type of good. He was really sharp in this game. Fletcher kicking three straight from 16 disposals. It's going to be scary seeing both him and Ashcroft running around in maroon, blue, and gold for the next decade plus. And yeah, the Lions' depth in the midfield is fine. Being able to make up for Neil Ashcroft not being in there, that was never a problem for them. The issue would be if... Andrews gets victimized again, and if Jack Payne maybe doesn't have as strong of a one-on-one performance when they play either the Blues or Demons in two weeks' time, I would say maybe in terms of defense then that would the Blues actually be a tougher matchup? Um, I think the Demons would test their depth more. The Blues would test their top guys more, but as we saw in this game, Brisbane can survive even with an off game from Harris-Anderson. Now that said, Jack Payne was quite good, Ryan Lester was solid as well, but yeah, there is a path. Now, Charlie Curnow only kicked one goal against Brisbane in round nine, and I think that was when he was not matched up against Payne. So this year has really been a coming out party for Jack Payne in so many respects defensively. For some reason, I always thought that he was older than he is. He's only 23. Maybe just because he's a big dude. Yeah, he's, what, 6'5 or 6'6? He's, uh, yeah, 197 centimeters and 101 kilos, so that puts him around 220 pounds. That's like some some tight end size right there. I'm just really looking forward to this Port Adelaide GWS matchup, especially the likely Todd Marshall versus Sam Taylor one-on-one. I think... Like, that's the best example of, you know, unstoppable force and movable object. Now, I've got one more question before we really finish wrapping this game up. You want gravy on that cellar door? No. I was going to ask, do you like that this week we'll have a semifinal between two teams from outside of Victoria and one between the two teams within it, then the week after you're going to have Victoria versus non-Victoria in each prelim? Do you like that or would you rather it be like an all-Victorian prelim and an all-out-of-state prelim? I don't really mind it one way or the other as long as we get quality games, honestly. You know that tickets will sell well regardless. You know that the atmosphere will be good. It's not a huge concern for me. I think it's an interesting thing. Josh Dunkley had 21 disposals and 7 tackles. His work with Cam Rayner was excellent. Rayner fed him for a few one-twos, and they pretty much always worked into a goal. It was another one of Rayner's best games. It amazes me that he's been as productive as he is, despite being cast as a defender to start the year. Really, since Holy Thursday, Chris Fagan learned his lesson and has kept him forward since. And I think he's now got 23 goals after kicking three more there on Saturday. Joe Danaher kicked 5-1 from his 16 disposals with 11 contested possessions. No, like, shocking miss or anything to my recollection. And one of the goals was just, like, a nice, turning, bouncy kick where he could have gone to Eric Hipwood to the side of him, but backed himself in. Considering how Hipwood kicked, he had some struggles. That was probably for the best. And again, it's a rare game where one of the two of them isn't on in terms of their accuracy. And unlike last year, you know that they'll both be playing in their second final. Because Joe Danaher's daughter is now just about one. In defense, Brandon Starcevich had 15 disposals, 10 intercepts and 7 marks. Ryan Lester with 13 and 7 marks for him as well. The defensive depth should be able to carry them a decent amount, even if one of their top guys has an off game. So I could see them winning their prelim by a decent margin, kind of like they did here, but without injuries impacting things so much. Lions with 16 more inside 50s, 26 more marks, 104 to 78. Port did lay 17 more tackles. The main guys did their thing for Port, just wasn't a lot of a lot in the way of depth contributions. Uh, Zach Butters, 29 disposals, 7 tackles, 599 meters. By the way, he was also, you know, the coach's MVP for the year. I was looking through the votes. There was the uh, Sydney-Melbourne game at round 24 was almost a perfect game. It was a 10-8, 5-5-2. the goal, 28 disposals, 8 clearances, 607 meters. The uh, Houston, 27 disposals got to be frustrating when you have Butters and Rosie both clicking. You still kind of get your clocks cleaned. Uh, Sam Powell Pepper, 2-2 from 19 disposals, 11 contested possessions. Miles Bergman, only 13 disposals, 7 marks, though. A quiet game for Jason Horn-Francis, thinking of Miles Bergman that he's to come up with. And Scott Lysette, I know Benjamin, you had some interesting takes about his performance that I'd love to hear more about, but he had a behind from 38 hitouts, 11 disposals, and 9 tackles. I want to believe in Lysette, but he's so up and down and is often less functional on other parts of the Oval. The nine tackles is what impressed me the most out of this showing. I still, though, for some reason, something's telling me that going deeper into September, I would back in Mason Cox ahead of him. Maybe it's just my Americanness. ness Maybe it's my belief in September, Mason. But I think when push comes to shove, I'd rather have Mason in there, as weird as that may be. Finals week one saw a new record. For a finals week attendance with 289,147 fans, beating the record from 2018 by a hair under 6,000. Three games at the G obviously being the catalyst for that. You said your piece about the matchups already. If we have to pick like a play of the round, is there any one thing that really stands out to you? And I'm not talking about a suspension causing play. I mean, that Sharman Hagger was nice. That Zach Bailey opening goal along the boundary was a big one. The league uh, really promoted that one on their socials. Yeah, I thought that was good, not great. I don't think there was really one that, like, jumped out to me. Yeah, I I think it's one of those two, though, so maybe those would be your mark and goal of the round, respectively. Although, Ollie Lord's, uh, turning snap goal was not bad either, especially for a tall guy. Main character for week one of finals, pretty damn obvious, yeah? Yeah, it's gotta be Brayden Manor, that's kind of a no-brainer. No-Brainard, really? I wasn't even trying to make a joke there. I said no-brainer. Well, maybe Collingwood will be no-brainer. Could be that way for the rest of the season. And into next. We'll have to see with the Tribunal... This episode will be out ahead of that, though, so uh, you'll be able to catch our thoughts on how the Tribunal is still deliberating than just marveling at the resolve of David Zeta and everybody else covering those things on Twitter at AmericansFooty. We are also on YouTube under that same handle. I am on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. Brian Morambe was just twitching in his sleep, which is really cute. And he is, again, Instagram at CatBameGryan. We're going to let him just keep on dreaming.